Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. First off, you might notice that the voice you're hearing is a new one. That's because my name is Paul Garcia, and as a full-time gig, I'm the host of The Paul Garcia Show, a weekly online show and video podcast that explores the amazing lives and insights of remarkable people from all around the state of Illinois. New video episodes come out each and every Sunday morning on YouTube and Facebook, and audio versions on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, all under the same name, The Paul Garcia Show. So be sure to check that out if you want to be educated and inspired by incredible stories from local heroes. Today, on Catholic Spirit Radio, we'll be speaking with a truly incredible woman from Gibson City who has one of the most unbelievable stories of miraculous survival that you have ever heard. Her name is Jill Doran, and in 1977, in Mattoon, Illinois, when she was just 15 years old, she and her family were caught in a deadly tornado that claimed multiple lives, ravaged properties, and in Jill's case, left her wheelchair-bound. But if you're expecting to hear from a woman who is down and out about the whole situation, then you are in for a surprise. So without further ado, Jill Doran, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Paul. I appreciate it. Yeah, the pleasure is all mine. But before we begin, Jill, I'd like to say a quick prayer since we are on Catholic Spirit Radio. So, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Please grant, O Heavenly Father, that today we might have a wholesome and honest conversation that may, in some way, benefit those who are listening. We thank you for this wonderful platform, for this amazing audience, and for the mental, spiritual, and physical health to be here talking today. Help us to never take these things for granted, and help us also to be better instruments of your peace. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So, Jill, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. A little cold, but not too bad. Oh, I feel your pain there. My (laughs) hands are still cold. They haven't quite recovered all the way. But uh, So before we go back in time to the 70s in Mattoon, Illinois, could you tell the listeners and myself just a little bit about who you are and what you do now? Well, um, I am retired currently. Um, I used to work at the GCMS, Gibson City, Melvin, Sibley School District as an office manager, and I retired from there in May. So right now, what I am doing is um, I'm doing a lot of cricketing and crafting, um, a lot of reading. Um, I just started uh, with Father Schmitz. I don't know if you've heard of it. Oh, the Bible in a Year podcast. I just started that this year, and I'm really excited about that. It's been very inspiring for me. So I do a lot of reading. Um, I am married, have been married. We're going to have our 40th anniversary this year. So I have two children and two wonderful grandchildren. And right now, just kind of uh, living a quieter, simpler life um, than I have probably for the last 40 years. So I'm doing well. I'm doing well, though, and I'm enjoying it. Sometimes a little bored, but I'm doing okay. Right. That's how it goes. And just to touch on that podcast you were talking about, I heard that's the number one podcast in the world, or at least has been a few different weeks this year. So that is incredible that so many people on the planet Earth, I mean, to say that Christianity is going out the window, well, that speaks volumes to that. It it seems like it's pretty popular. Absolutely. And I think what's really cool is I used to be a catechism teacher um, way, way back when, and that was what I concentrated on was, you know— all the way from the beginning of the Bible to the end. And um, when he's talking about things and, and uh, the lineage and all that kind of stuff, I remember the kids always being like, oh, you know, all these names and all that stuff. But the stories that you can still relate to today, and he brings that out, in, and I'm listening, and I'm like, you know, those are things that I said years ago. And I'm like, ah, I think I was kind of right on. So, um, you know, I've really enjoyed it so far. Right. Incredible stuff. But as we, I mean, we're here today to talk about your story. So how about we jump right into that? So before 1977 in Mattoon, Illinois, on August 21st, tell us just a little bit about where you came from. What, where did you grow up and things like that? Well, I was born and raised in Fairbury, Illinois, so not too far, a little bit north and east of here. And um grew up in a in the seventies, sixties and the seventies in a in a great home. Um parents that um fostered uh anything from, you know, like uh, athletics to creativity, all that kind of stuff. Um growing up I had a kind of, I would say, what, quote, is a normal childhood from the 60s and the 70s. I I did uh, play 
a lot of sports. I was into uh, softball and volleyball. And probably one of my favorite things was track and cheerleading. So I, I really concentrated a lot on that. I, I was very competitive. My father, uh, kind of did the same thing when he was in school way back in the fifties. And so he, he definitely did foster that in me and he saw that I had a little bit of that. So I really concentrated a lot on my athletics at that time. So, um, you know, Life like anybody else. Uh, I was very lucky. My parents owned a store in downtown Fairbury, which um, was very popular and did um, a good business. So it afforded us the kind of the luxury of having a weekend place. And um, we called it the cabin down at Lake Mattoon. And we bought that place. Uh, my parents bought it, I believe, like in about 68, 69, somewhere around in that area. So every weekend and then during the summers, we would go down to Mattoon and, and spend time skiing and swimming and, you know, spending time with my cousins who shared half of the property with us. And it was down in that area that um, as I grew up and when I turned 15 that the tragic event happened and um, it was just a Sunday afternoon, just like any other day. And we were enjoying family time, had been out on a boat on the lake um, Sunday afternoon. It was kind of spitty rain outside and a little bit, not cool, but cooler than most August days. It was August 27th, like you said, in 1977. We had just come back from a boat ride went inside, we were going to have a little snack. And it the weather just it all of a sudden, it just kind of seemed kind of uh, full of energy and kind of staticky. And um, I looked outside and I remember looking out and seeing a, a gray, green, black, like wall of stuff. And I was just like, I looked at my uncle who was kind of standing right beside me. And he was just like, I'm going to go out and check it out. And so I went out with him being curious. And we were outside and, and the wind started to pick up. And I've told this story to you before, Paul, but um, you could like smell the earth moving around. You could smell the dirt and and just this different smell. And my uncle kind of turned and looked at me. He said, Jill, we need to get inside. So we ran inside and uh, before I knew it, you know, we were crouched down like you're supposed to crouch in, in school days, you know, with your head tucked down and your hands over your head. I had grabbed our family pet. And I was holding him and I put my head down and my brother and sister were beside me. And um, my father, I didn't really know where he was at the time, but I could see my mom kind of out of the corner of the eye and she was up in the kitchen. We had an addition built onto a trailer. That was our cabin. And I could kind of see her out of the corner of my eye. And in split seconds, it just like our whole front edition, which I was in, kind of imploded. Uh, windows blew out and um, just everything just disintegrated and I went flying through the air. And um, minutes later, I mean, I can remember flying through the air and seeing things fly through the air. And uh, in a moment, I fell, I was holding that our pet, and I landed in between my shoulders flying through the air, and then I passed out. And then I ended up waking up in the middle of, I didn't know where at the time, but um, my cousin was kind of underneath of me and I went to move and I knew I couldn't move. I I knew that something wasn't right. But when I had woken up, actually my pet dog was licking my face and that's kind of what woke me up. And so I was looking up at the sky and all around me, I could just see total destruction. I mean, wood, people, um, pillows, mattresses. I mean, just everything was just a mess. Come to find out later that we traveled um, like the location that we were, it was, there was nothing left but the concrete foundation. So everything just blew apart. Um, we kind of traveled out a little bit over the lake. We lived in a cove and we traveled a little bit out over the lake and then passed our house again. And we landed about a quarter to a half mile away in the middle of a cornfield. Um, so it, I mean, just utter chaos, you know, people, screaming and not knowing, you know, what was going on. And um, at that time, this is the 70s, and there was no warning, forewarning. I mean, you know, we take a look at now, you get the storm warnings that come out so far in advance and get into your shelter location. And it was, was not anything like that. It was just like, we went outside, came in, and it hit. I mean, and um, it was... Um, 
It was scary. Um, Yeah, very scary. And um, the resulting of that is that obviously there weren't enough ambulances to take a lot of people to hospitals. And we were in a very pretty much remote location. Even though you say Mattoon, this is actually like more of the Nioga area, which is in the middle of nowhere. And so we had ambulances coming from Mattoon and from Charleston and just not enough to carry people. But um, I remember a gentleman coming up to me and and I just told him, I said, I don't want anybody touching me because I know that I'm paralyzed. I, I've done something. I can move my arms, but I know I can't move my bottom half. And um, what's funny is that we had taken, I had taken a health class my freshman year and, or may have been my eighth grade year. And I, and our, my teacher, we did a first aid course and we talked about this. You know, if somebody is injured and they identify to you that there may be a severe injury or a paralysis or something like that, you know, don't touch them. Don't move them until emergency personnel arrive. So I did that. I mean, farmers were picking up people and throwing in the back of pickup trucks and things oh like my. that because there was, you know, they wanted to get people cleared and, and in order for the ambulances to get out there, they had to move people and stuff. And so by the time they got to me, I just looked at them and I said, I'm paralyzed. So please be careful with me. And, you know, they did everything right. You know, they secured my head and, you know, they put the backboard underneath me and I rode in an ambulance to Charleston uh, with my aunt who was pretty severely injured at the time too. Um, Resulting injuries were my mother and um, an aunt were killed. My father received very, very, very severe head injury that he kind of battled the rest of his life with. Uh, my little brother had broken uh, both arms and uh, multiple lacerations. I mean, both arms were broken severely. And uh, my sister, who was one of the ones that got thrown in kind of on a mattress in the back of a pickup truck, um, actually inhaled a shard of glass. Like they think maybe she screamed or, you know, just took a deep mm-hmm. breath and inhaled a small piece of uh, glass. And it actually was like cutting up her lungs and they didn't know it. So by the time she got to the hospital, she was in severe condition and had to go to emergency surgery, survived. Um, but um, it was pretty traumatic. And for a 15 year old, um, that's a 100% churn in a life that it's, you know, it's going to be difficult. Am I going to move forward? Where where am I at? What am I going to do? And all I could think about really was, where's my brother and my sister? And I kept telling them when I saw them, because they were around me, I said, tell them your name, who your parents are. Don't get, try not to get separated. If I get separated from you, just remember your parents' names. They're going to ask you. They'll find you. And then I remember being wheeled away in to get x-rays and being treated for my trauma. Um, so, uh, you know, I I didn't see them for quite a few days later because I was actually medicated then after that so that I don't remember a whole lot for about two or three days. Man, one of the most incredible stories you'll ever hear. That's astonishing. And to say it's traumatizing is really almost an understatement. No one, really no one will experience anything quite like what you experienced when you were just 15 years old. And there's a lot to unpack there in that story. One thing that I want to ask is, can you explain explain what it was like or how quickly from the time that you and your uncle went from looking at that wall of, of earth and debris flying around to the time you went inside, how much time passed before you were up, sucked up into the air? A minute. A minute. Wow. I mean, literally, I remember walking in through the side door. And he, he was looking at me and he says, everybody needs to get down. Everybody needs to get down. And he actually ran into the trailer to get a mattress to put over all the kids. There was four, five of us. And he was going to get a mattress to put over us and it hit that quick. So he jumped over us to get to the mattress and it hit. So a minute, maybe at the most. And it was just, and Paul, when I want to say implosion, I mean implosion. Windows busting out and just everything just in a turmoil, just spinning and and going around. And like I said, I remember everything until I hit the ground um, right between my back. And then everything, I blacked out until I woke up with the dog licking my face. Man, okay. So tell me then about those seconds when the tornado first hit and when the windows imploded, you said almost instantly stuff was spinning and you were in the air. And incredibly, you remember it all. 
tell me about that. What, what do you remember seeing? I, I remember seeing things like flying around. I don't remember the whole like going out over the water and coming back and landing. The thing that I remember the most is more like the smells. And today that is what gets me the most when a storm is coming. I can smell it. I can feel it versus, you know, like even I, I will look obviously and I'm much more weather aware than most people probably would be. But, um, it is more of the smell. Now I, like I said, I remember certain things, but when I passed out, I was, that was it. I don't remember. My little brother is the one that pretty much remembers everything. Um, and he definitely has, I think more of that trauma of awareness, you know, of what happened, where me, I, I passed out for a good chunk of it that I didn't remember. I remember spinning and I remember things flying through the air and people flying through the air. And then I was, I don't know how long it was that when the tornado hit that I actually landed and broke my back. I, I don't remember how long that was. So it's interesting that a lot of the information from this memory is stored kind of in your sense of smell. Very fascinating. I'm sure. And as, sound, yes. And sound. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So do you, are you pretty aware, like when you smell, when a storm's a brewing, you can smell that, that mm-hmm. familiar earthy smell and you Absolutely. know that that's a sign to get inside maybe. Right. Right. And like I said, I mean, times have changed so much now. So I'm just much more weather aware of what's going on. And like, I know a day in advance what's going to happen. Like, are they expecting storms tomorrow? I, I track all that kind of stuff. And I just, uh, I pay attention where a lot of people are just like, oh, it's a thunderstorm. No biggie. But mm-hmm. I pay attention more than most. Are you scared of storms to this day? Um, I used to be terrified after it. Terrified. The strangest thing is when I got married, <laughs> I kind of lost that a little bit of that fear. So um, I don't know if it was the sense of, you know, protection and security that I felt when I got married. Um, I don't know what it is, but and I think it's the idea that I'm more aware. But I, I definitely get nervous if I start seeing those red. If I'm, you know, I'm watching, you know, a meteorologist and I start seeing the red walls and I can kind of see the comma forming, like they say, you know, that's the Boeing effect. You mm-hmm. then I get nervous and I and I really start watching and I'm like, where am I at? Where am I going to go? Those kinds of things. So right, oh, completely understandable. Absolutely. And in just one second, I want to ask you about what it was like. After you hit the ground, when you woke up, you know, when you went to the hospital, presumably, when you got the news, all that stuff. But first, I want to take a quick break and hear a quick word from our sponsors. You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Hi, I'm Deacon Al, and I have good news for teenagers. Good News is a program I'm hosting each week on this radio station. Good News with Deacon Al, Saturday and Sunday evenings at 8 p.m. on Catholic Spirit Radio. All right, and we are back, and you are listening to Catholic Spirit Radio. This is Catholic Conversations. I'm Paul Garcia, and I'm talking to Jill Doran. So, Jill, where we just left off was I was going to ask you about the moment of impact and what you remember immediately following uh, being sucked up, thrown a half mile or so away from the destination that you were originally in by this tornado. But I want to ask before that, you know, you had siblings. You had your family with you in Mattoon, Illinois. On this day, what what are your experiences like? Are you all equally traumatized, or did some of your siblings handle this whole situation differently than you? Because you seem to have came to terms with it a lot, but is that the case for the rest of your family? I think, Paul, that um, as we are all individuals, we all deal with things differently. Um, I think, hmm, I think for me, I needed to begin to focus on where I was going and how I was going to kind of overcome and all the physical parts of things that were happening that I didn't probably deal with it as much then. Um, I would think that definitely my, they were younger. Um, my brother was four years younger, my sister five years younger. So they were very young. And I think that their trauma, um, although we don't as adults talk about that day very much, um, we have this shared trauma, but we don't 
talk about it one-to-one a lot of times. Um, and I do think that there's probably a fair share of kind of um, covered up trauma that some of us haven't maybe dealt with. And I'll be honest that I probably think that when I go out and I talk about this a lot, it always uncovers a little bit more. And I think I come out of it a little bit lighter each time because I feel like, you know, I've, I've talked about it again and I've shared it again and I did live through that. And so I'm still here and I'm still doing good. So I'm, you know, always moving forward. Um, and I think a lot of that had to to do with who I was as a person. And I, even though I was a little bit older, you know, I was very competitive. I was very, you know, focused in my brain as far as things that I, I wanted in my life and, and they weren't there yet. So I think as children, they probably didn't have, and, and it happened so quick and all of us were hospitalized for a longer period of time that we didn't get to go to our mother's funeral. We didn't get to experience that closure with her. Um, and so I think that, it lays there, and some of us, I have, think that I have dealt with it, but maybe I have, maybe I haven't. I don't know. Maybe there will still come a day that I'll be like, "Whoa!" I mean, I have my moments of breakdowns, you know, where I um, am very frustrated, um, you know, with my disability. It's normal, oh, of course. And, yeah, yeah, and um, and I think that there are times, um, and I think as I've gotten older and as I've had children and my grandchildren, that I'm like, gosh, you know, I really wish you could have seen, you know, my children, or really could have, you know, held them or you know helped me learn to be a mom. I mean, I'm a good mom. I think I'm a good mom, and I'm a great, I'm a great Grammy. So um, I think that um, I've learned, but um, I miss that. I miss that. And I think that that's part of the the thing that will always be with me. And I will always deal with that. If you don't mind me asking, when did you and your siblings find out about your mom's death? Well, my sister and I, because she had gone through the surgery of, you know, the lung, um, she was actually put in ICU and I was in ICU at the same time and we were in the same room. Um, I remember my older sister who was not there at the time she was married and um, chose, you know, they had their own life and really didn't come down to the lake that much anymore. And, uh, she kind of had to take over because my father was incapacitated as well, did not know for several weeks to a month really what was going on in his life. You know, he didn't know what happened because of the brain trauma. Um, but I remember kind of waking up and I could swear that it was probably like I could hear thunder or raining and maybe that's just something that I'm remembering and it's not right. But, um, I, I woke up and I looked and I saw my sister sitting in between our two beds and I just looked at her and she kind of looked at me and she goes, you're awake. And I'm like, yeah. And I said, what about mom? Because I didn't see her afterwards at all. And I saw my dad and my brother and my sister. I said, what about mom? She didn't make it, did she? And she looked over at me and she goes, no, she died. And I was, you know, thankful probably that I was medicated at that time because then I, I went back out and I don't remember anything until really like becoming awake probably a couple of days later when they started pulling me off of medication. And that's when they knew that they were going to have to do surgery on my back in order to, you know, stabilize it. And then all the physicality of getting better started. So. And the sister that broke the news to you, you said was five years younger than you, right? No, um, she was my older sister. And so she's like three years older than me, but she didn't go down to the lake very often. So, you know, um, she was married and, you know, just, just didn't go, you know, just didn't go down there anymore. So she, you know, was back in Fairbury at the time when it all happened. So So in the weeks and months that followed this tragic event, your dad was, I mean, for the most part, he was incapacitated. And your yeah. and your mother so sadly was no longer with you guys. What did you do as a family? How did you persevere? What did your family take on a new dynamic or how did you continue to go to school? So many questions here. <laughs> um it did take on a new dynamic. I think I would say that my sister was the head of the family for quite a while until my father was able to kind of come back. Um, you know, they're still discovering things about brain trauma and brain injury and things like that. But he, um, it took him a while for him to fully kind of come back as, as the head of the family type of thing. You know, I would say, you know, months worth. I will tell you this, that um, my brother and sister weren't in the hospital for very long. I was in the hospital for about five months. 
um, anywhere from, you know, the actual physical part of repairing the injury where they took bone out of my hip and wrapped it around the two, um, I had thoracic six and seven that were completely severed, uh, crushed. And so they severed my spinal cords, uh, spinal cords. So there is absolutely like, if you just think of a, a knife, cutting something. It is completely cut. There are no nerves that are still reattached. So I have no physical movement, um, little sensation, you know, from the waist on down. So a lot of what I had to do first was heal that. And so that was about a month's worth of actually physically healing the bones. And so I laid on what was called a striker frame where they, I would lay on my stomach and look down. Then they'd flip me over and I'd lay at the, you know, look at the, the ceiling. And then every two hours they would flip me over. So if people came to visit me in the hospital and I happened to be on my stomach, <laughs> they literally would get on the floor and look up at me and have a conversation with me. Wow. So, but what I wanted to get to is it it was a very long physical battle, emotional battle that I had to, that I faced. And I say this because my family was there the whole time. You know, they, they visited me, they, they pushed me to do better. Um, But when you live in a small community, like I did, and for my father who owned a store and being very integral part of the community. Um, I grew up as a Methodist, um, but all of um, the churches gathered money, donations, the the bank's donations to help us. And literally, I think, kind of just came around us. They supported my older sister, Jan, when she needed, you know, financial support and physical support in order, you know, to assist me at the hospital, you know, to help my dad. Uh, I can't say enough uh, that family, that family um, feeling that I got from my community, right, was huge. That fan, uh, the f- town of Fairbury, the community of Fairbury, that place is built on Christian values. It's it an incredibly wholesome, wonderful group of people that live there, and it's as far as I know, it's always been that way. So I'm not surprised by that story. Well, I'm going back to the 60s, so I can tell you at least that far, you know, (laughs) it's all good. It's all good. So by the way, you're listening to Catholic Spirit Radio, and I'm Paul Garcia. I'm speaking with Jill Doran. So Jill, how do I want to say this here? Talk to me about what some of the most difficult parts of your rehabilitation were physically and mentally, maybe even spiritually, and then explain how did you get through them? Okay. Um, so I, like I said, the first part was the actual physical healing and then the work started. Um, during that time frame, I, I did anything. I had to relearn everything all over again. You know, how to get dressed from a seated position, um, how to make a bed, you know, how to cook from a seated position. I mean, anything that you can think of. So I did physical therapy, which was, um, strengthening my body as a whole. Um, being an athlete at that point, I think was, probably a huge benefit to me um, because of I was already physically fit and tone. And so a lot of that, I was already strong. And the competitive part of me and the the mental focus of an athlete was more like, I got to do this and I got to get better and it's going to help me in the long run. So I got to keep doing. So my physical therapist was always just like, eh, you know what to do. Just, you know, keep doing what you're doing. And it was probably the occupational side, you know, where you had to relearn all that stuff again and kind of coming to terms as who the new person was because I knew, I mean, they had told me you're never going to walk again. And like I said, this is back in the seventies. And so at that time they even said, you know, um, you're probably never going to get married. You're Jeez. probably, yeah, you're probably never going to have children. You'll probably be in a nursing home by the time you're 50 years old. You know, you'll need people. doctors pe- tell you this? Yes. I'm yes. surprised. People, you know, and, and so that was a scary thought. Like, gosh, is my life over right now? You know, is this all I'm going to have? And so at that point, I think, like I said, it was family it was friends. It was my community and the support that I received that I was just like, yeah, I don't think so. This is not going to be it. And so I, I think that I just, I'm a naturally 
pretty much uplifting person. And I believe in my inner being as a person of being able to kind of work my way through things. And I think I've always done that as a child. I, I was always kind of known as this bubbly personality and, and funny and people always, you know, just thought, you know, she's great to have along because, you know, there's always, you know, fun. And, and so I think I was just like, you know, that's who I am as a person. So I'm not going to let this be something that's going to not, um, make me who I really am. And, you know, at the time, I was really probably going through some stuff where I kind of thought I was, you know, popular. I was kind of hanging with some older people, maybe going down a road that was maybe not the best road that I possibly could go down. Um, and, um, thinking I was a little bit more than what I was. And this, I don't ever want to say that this happened for a reason because I don't believe that. I mean, it was a freak accident of nature that it happened, right. but I believe that what I did after was what I was made to do is what, what, you know, the person that I am today, the person that I had to become was what I was meant to, to become. And I believe that was some inner, inner faith and inner person telling me you got a whole lot more ahead of you and you just got to push through. You got to push through. And so, I did for five months and actually I did tutoring at uh, the hospital. Teachers would come from, you know, Fairbury High School. They would come and Tuesday nights would be like uh, Mr. Cagle would come in and he'd do social studies and, and, um, math. And then Mrs. Moser would come in and she would do English my, and science, my core subjects. And I came back, um, my middle of my sophomore year, January of my sophomore year went back to school and the school had already gone through a little bit of a transformation because there was a young boy um, several years before me that had fallen from a hay rack and was paralyzed. And so a lot of modifications had already been done and they kind of knew what to expect and knew what to do. So um, it made it a whole lot easier. I think the hardest part was um, it wasn't the physical part of it. And I don't really even want to say it was totally the emotional part. I think for me, the hardest part was people looking at me. The social part. Yes, the social part. And people looking at me differently and me like wanting to try to make them feel comfortable with me. Because, you know, all my friends completely changed. I I, I used to run with athletes and and now they were more of uh, those that were kind of on the outer fringe of the athletes. And I became much more studious and um, got into the arts instead. And so things like that, I think, um, were the hardest struggle for me. Uh, sometimes looking at myself in a mirror and knowing, mm, this is it. And at such a time in your life, I mean, you were a 15-year-old, 16-year-old girl where your image, your bodily image is hugely important. So what a what a test that would have been. And I want to ask, because you have, being that you were in a unique position, maybe you can give all the listeners some insight to this. As someone who is newly disabled and young and a woman in high school, for Pete's sake, what? how did people respond that wasn't um, appreciated by you? Like, what do you not like to feel when you're in your position? And what do what would you recommend people? How would you recommend people act instead? You know, I think today everything is so much more inclusive. But back in the seventies, there wasn't the Americans with Disabilities Act. There wasn't a lot of the laws that are set in place to protect people with disabilities. Um, so I think people are much more uh, people with disabilities are much more seen you know, included in events, um, or held, hold higher positions. But I think, um, back then it was, I didn't want anybody to think of me any differently than being a person. My wheelchair is just an extension of who I am to get from place A to place B. The body is still here. The person that I was is still here, although it had gone through some minor tweaks and some changes. Um, but you're right at 15, looking at your body and, and having those, you know, we know today the self, you know, image of who you are can totally mess you up sometimes. Um, and I had to deal with that. But um, today, I, I think what they did back then is I felt like when they looked at me, they they felt sorry for me. And um, 
even my friends back then, they, I mean, they treated me as Jill, most of them. But, you know, for the kids, they would just avoid their eyes and not look at me. Or if they would, they'd stare a little bit longer. Like if I, I still have what's called like spasms, you know, my muscles still spasm. And so like they would jump or whatever and they'd look at me. Oh my gosh, you know, is she, she's moving, but she's paralyzed. And so it would freak them out and things like that. But, um, today I, as I said, I think since we're in so much more of a inclusive society, that it's so much more normal to see somebody in a wheelchair out and about. Um, so I don't think it's as bad. But even like when my children were little, um, my daughter, who, you know, would maybe six or seven at the time, you know, if people would stare at me, she would turn around and look at them like these big bug eyes. She'd be like, you know, what are you staring at? That's my mom, you know, because she never saw anything other than that's just my mom. So, but people still do that. I mean, they'll look. But it's not, I don't think it's as prevalent as it used to be. I mean, like I couldn't go to a movie theater. They told me I was a fire hazard. If I try to sit in the aisle beside my friends, you know, well, you can't sit there. You're a fire hazard. Well, where the heck else am I supposed to sit, you know? So then my friends would pick me up and put me in the chair and put me in the seat. And then they'd take the wheelchair out, you know? And then, of course, I didn't have my wheelchair. So then I'm like freaking out because like, you know, that's part of me now. So, um I think we've come a long way since the 70s, but um, there was a lot between 1977 and today. There was a whole lot of of, um, growth and um, development that I had to do as a person as well. Right. Yes, a lot has changed. And I can tell because it's shocking just to hear how you were treated. And, you know, these people didn't have any malicious intents or anything in treating you this way. It was just kind of the way of the times. But to hear that they said, you can't come to the movie theater, you're a fire hazard. Like, that's rough to hear. And I, in a way, I'm sorry that you had to go through that. But it seems like when people would feel sorry for you at the time, well, that's not exactly what you wanted, nor was it appreciated. Is that fair to say? That's absolutely right. I, I didn't want to feel different. At that time, I, I, they were making me feel different. And I didn't want to feel that way. At the same time, I mean, I understood they're, they were curious. And I still look at that today. So like, if I'm like in... Um, like a Target or something like that. And I go in there and children are probably the most curious of all, you know, and so they'll look or, you know, and I'll wave at them or whatever. And they'll just kind of keep looking at me. And, you know, parents will be like, oh, you know, don't look, you know, don't stare. It's not nice to stare. And I was just, I would just look. I'm like, it's okay. You know, do you have any questions? You know, is there something you'd like to know? And, and they're very honest, you know, why are you in a wheelchair? And so, and even my grandchildren, you know, are like my, my granddaughter rode over with us today and she is almost four and she, they know that Grammy hurt her back a long time ago. But today she goes, I told her I had an appointment and that I was not going to be with them for a little bit because I had an appointment. And she goes, are you going to get your back looked at today? And I was just like, no, honey, you know, I have a different kind of an appointment. But, you know, she is still, they're still, people are curious. And I understand that. And so I would much rather, and I can't say this for everybody, but I would much rather somebody come up to me and ask me, you know, can I ask you a few questions? I am more than willing to ask somebody or to answer those questions. Um, there's not people, not, there are some people that are not like that. They're like, you know, mind your own business. And, but I feel like I have come to terms with things and it's who I am. So I feel like, you know, if you have questions, ask. I think it's wonderful that you are inviting of people's curiosity for your situation and very patient with the children who ask the cute questions like they do. And I think we need more of that. And in just a second, I want to ask how, how you, continue to grow as a person in your emotional uh, health and in your spiritual health and even your physical health after after all after high school after college all that stuff but first I'd like to take a moment to have a quick word from our sponsors you're listening to Catholic conversations on Catholic Spirit radio Catholic Spirit radio welcomes our newest listeners into Kalb County Illinois. Our acquisition of FM translator W206CE was made possible by the generosity of Catholic Spirit Radio supporters in central Illinois. We hope our programming helps you to develop a mature understanding of your Catholic faith. We welcome the communities of DeKalb, Sycamore, and areas beyond to our family of listeners and supporters. May God bless you for listening. 
All right, and we are back, and you are listening to Catholic Spirit Radio. This is Catholic Conversations. I'm Paul Garcia, and I'm talking to Jill Doran. So we've talked a lot about your high school career and your high school experience, the new friends, the uh, body image issues, and everything like that. What happened after high school, though? Well, um, after high school, I decided I wanted to go to college. So I went to Parkland and uh, in Champaign. I went there and with the idea of becoming a rehabilitation specialist to help other people with disabilities um, kind of through the rehabilitation process. I got down there and um, one of my roommates was involved in radio. And so I kind of started going down there and spending time at the radio station at Parkland. Got into some radio work there and I thought, hmm, I kind of like that. So I finished out my um, education uh, in communications and um, I had dated a boy in high school and I broke up because I had to go to college, you know, and you got to be free when you're in college. You know how that goes, right? So I came back for Christmas and um, I happened to see him and I was like, you know what? I'm going to call him up. So I called up Matt and I said, hey, you got a few minutes. You know, I, I'd like to see you again. I'd like to talk to you. So we got together uh, December 27th and we've been together ever since. So um, after I, I got married to my high school sweetheart, uh, we've been married, like I said, for 40 years. And um, I basically... Um, it was hard finding a job um, back in the 80s is when that was. I graduated in 1980 in college and got married in 1982. And um, local or small towns, it's kind of hard to find jobs sometimes. So uh, about three years later, I worked for a little bit, just on and off part-time. And then a radio station opened up in Gibson City and I applied there and I did some radio work there. I worked on air, I did news, I did sales, all that kind of stuff. But um, had two children. Uh, my son, Case, lives up in Wisconsin, married, um, has a son. My daughter, Andrea, lives in Gibson City and uh, married and has a daughter, as I've mentioned earlier. And um, I, I worked here in Bloomington Normal for about 17 years at a place called Life Center for Independent Living. I was an associate director there, and that business is a nonprofit organization that basically helps people with disabilities uh, maintain their independence, live in their own home, um, in a wide variety of services. And I, like I said, I was an associate director there. And um, you mentioned uh, as we went into the break, you know, uh, learning to deal with your emotional, you know, how did you do your emotional and physical help? And I really feel like um, that job was probably one of the most rewarding jobs that I've ever had in my life. Um, I did a lot of different things. I did legislative work where, um, you know, I went down to Springfield and I work on laws that affected people with disabilities. Um, I spoke and used my voice for that. Um, I did a lot of work here in Bloomington Normal with the town of Normal, city of Bloomington on accessibility laws way back then. And um so I, I feel like I did a lot of, of what I was supposed to do in, in doing change, but I got to a point where I was beginning to be a little bit physically, I could begin to notice the change of my physical abilities. Getting in and out of the van took a lot, a lot longer time. And I, and the driving took a toll on me because it's a 45 minute drive from Gibson City to Bloomington on Route 9, which is crappy roads during the winter, you know, and it just, it, it got a little old. And, and I, I looked at my husband and I said, I got to wind down a little bit. And um, I don't know that I can physically do this much longer. So a job opened up in Gibson City at the middle school and I took it and um, it was a great job for five years. And, and after that, I decided I really needed to be done that, you know, I'm 59 years old going on 60 in about a month here. And I need to reserve what energies and what physical abilities that I have so that I have them for my family and my children and my grandchildren. So I said I decided to retire, and here I am now. So um, I, I, I feel like in going through a lot of those years of becoming an advocate and working on myself as a person, um, it was a lot of internal thought and and I did become Catholic uh, when I married my husband a couple years after. Actually, I, I started going to the Catholic Church in Fairbury with him before we were married. And I just felt 
it felt right and it felt at home. And so after we were married, we got, we did get married in the Methodist church, um, because I wasn't Catholic yet. And my father, that was what he wanted. And so we did that. And after that, though, we decided, you know, we wanted to raise our children in the Catholic faith. So I did join and, um, has, has supported me faithfully, you know, for mm, 35 years or so. And, um, I, I, I really believe that, like I said, I think this all happened for, um, I, I don't say for a reason. I think right. for a better purpose in my life. It, it, it took me on a path that brought me stronger faith, brought me, um, stronger, um, as a person. So that makes me a better person overall. So. Right. And I, I like that you said, you know, you, you hesitate to ever say anything like, I think this all things happen for a reason. I suppose technically speaking, things happen for a reason, but to, to assume that it's God's direct plan, that he makes everything happen, is not it's not doctrine, it's not even logical, and it can be really a bad thing to to promote. Because if I get up and I punch my roommate in the face that was that God's plan? Absolutely not. Not everything happened because of no. God's plan. Absolutely. And, and you know, and I think that's what a lot of people will say, you know, um, has there ever been a time that you were like angrier? You know, if people say, why did God let that happen to you? I mean, it killed, you know, your mother was killed. Your father severely, you know, had things happen and you, you got to deal with this and suffer with this the rest of your life. And I'm like, uh, that wasn't God. That wasn't God doing that to me. You know, it, it wasn't him doing that. I mean, it was to me, that was an act of nature. And I just, it was in a moment of time that something happened that that wasn't him. Now, maybe what happened afterwards, that was him. A product of some divine intervention, Absolutely. for sure. For him, given, you know, helping, I pulled that to help make me a stronger person, you know, and I've, and I've relied on that to kind of get me through some tough times. You know, I fall back on that, you know, when I'm struggling and when I have those days that, and, and I'll be totally honest with you. There was a day about a month ago that I woke up on a Sunday and I remember it was a Sunday. My husband had to be at work that day and I was struggling so physically and I was crying and and I, I have those moments, you know, it, it, everybody has those moments when you feel that uh, in your life. It could be, I'm going through something financial, I'm going through a divorce, I'm going through, uh, you know, a breakup or a family strife or something like that. I mean, I think everybody has those. And it was just like, what do I do? What do I do? And I had to take that deep breath you know, and I was just like, I have to bring myself back. And, and how do I do that? And I, I listened to some good music and, and I kind of, you, you bring yourself out of it. But I, I truly believe that, um, faith has gotten me a lot of where I am. A lot of it's been some very physical work and it still is every day because I do deal with stuff every day. But I think it, it makes me a, a stronger and a more, a, a happier version because I know that deep inside I have that. Right. And as we were saying earlier, you know, freak accidents, in, uh, terrible acts of nature, they happen and they cause a lot of disruption in our lives, a lot of distress, a lot of trauma even. But what we can control is how we respond to those situations, to those matters. And if you respond with philosophies or according to philosophies of Christian values, of Catholic values, you're going to be better off. And it seems like that's exactly what you did. You know, you persevered, you kept your faith, or you at least wrestled with your faith and managed to keep it. And it seems like that that made all the difference for you. It did. Uh, and like I said, I, I feel like every day there's always a new test. And there's always something kind of that you have to think about. But um, I think that that has what has got me through probably some of my darkest times is is my faith. And and like I said, I, from a child, I grew up as a Methodist and we, you know, went to church every Sunday. And, and um, you know, uh, it's just something that you try to hold. Now, am I the perfect Catholic? 
know, and I don't think there probably really truly is right. a perfect Catholic. Um, I, I I told you before we started that um, one of my goals this year and what I've started is reading the Bible in a year, and I'm doing it on a podcast with uh, Father Schmitz, and um, it's been very eye-opening for me because I really feel that um, – he says it all the time, you know, there's, there's nobody that's a perfect Catholic. What we can do is every day is, is pray and, you know, try to be the best that we can and, and walk with God as we can, you know, and that's what we do. So. And one of my other things, uh, something that I love that I learned from Father Mike Schmitz was that the word Israel means to wrestle with God. And I think that's beautiful because people have this habit of thinking, that faith should look like an easygoing, nice, loving, romantic process. But really, at least in my experience, my faith is a lot like a wrestling match. You know, you know, I'm feeling horrible today. God, where are you? What are you doing? Then I have to, I pray to him, but I angrily pray to him, like, come on, do something. And then only to later, you know, his blessings make themselves known. And, and then I say, I'm sorry. And it's just this back and forth, wishy-washy stuff, but it's ultimately an amazing thing. And like, if you wrestle for a lot of your life, you become stronger in, oh, in all that stuff. So Absolutely. I don't know exactly where I was going with that, but uh, I like Father Mike Schmitz too, and, and um, the faith journey, looking like a wrestling match, uh, like what you've you've presumably gone through. Um, I, I think that's really a beautiful thing. And would you agree that your faith is like a wrestling match? Yeah, I do, and I I also I, I feel that it's where I get my strength, but I do feel that every day it is. It's one of those things that you know people can look at me and say. How do you do it every single day? You know, why aren't you frustrated? Why aren't you angry? And I'm like, man, that's a long life of being angry. And and so I I do feel that, uh, again, you know, none of us are perfect. And and I think that uh, I've fallen away and I've come back and I've fallen away and I've come back. And right now reading uh, with him, it has been um, very eye-opening. You know, the very first books. You know, you talk about all the, the you know, Job and and Abram and and the the struggles that they went through every day, and uh, you know hardships that they faced, but they kept their faith through it all. You know, and so I think that uh, that's just. It's natural. It's what it's, it's for me. It's that's natural. You know, you struggle, you keep your faith, but you struggle and, and, and you just, you keep at it day after day. One thing I want to ask about before we wrap up here is your husband, Matt. I hope I can say his name sure, on the absolutely. radio. Yeah. But so you guys were high school sweethearts and he seems like a nice guy, but apparently you being in a wheelchair didn't bother him. Although, People gave you tons of looks. I mean, this was the mm-hmm. 70s after all. He didn't seem to care. No. And um, I'll tell you this, that I think that um, there were a lot of people when we first started dating, um, he hadn't dated a whole lot and neither had I, you know, so um, it was both kind of, we, we kind of got together through my best friend and his cousin. They were dating. And so we went on like a double date. Um, but it was so easy with him and it still is today, just so easy. But there was a lot of people, I think even his mother, you know, who said, think about what you're doing. You know, this is a lifetime of, you know, in, in the future, it could be a lot of struggles and there, you know, it's not going to be easy all the way through. And he has never faltered once, you know, of, um, even like when we broke up, that was me, you know, saying, you know, I want to be free. I want to date. I want, and I dated one person, you know, and then I was like, nah, no, I, I, I had found who I knew I needed to be with. And he, um, um, he lives this life with me every day too. And it's just as much his struggle as it is mine. And, and he helps me bear it. He helps me carry the load a little bit every day. Um, so, um, a lot of people are just, you know, it's so funny because I, I do feel like sometimes people will say, oh, geez, you're so lucky because he's such a great guy. He is. But yet at the same time, that's what a good relationship is based on. Bingo. You share, you share um, that love. You share that faith. You share those burdens together. And that's what makes it so much easier, I think. Mm-hmm. And to to think that a wet or to think that a marriage won't involve a serious serious amount of work, 
I mean, if you if you think that you're in for a rude awakening, at least, you know, what do I know, really? I'm not married. But I've read a lot and I've heard a lot about it. Well, and you've it's, seen stuff, yeah. Of course. Sure, yeah. And I, I, I do, I, I feel like we're a good example of, man, you know, those two, if they can do it and, and kind of, we share a lot, I think, more than most marriages do. You know what I mean? The physical part of it, the emotional struggle of, you know, me and... Uh, of my life as, you know, living as a person with a disability. So we've shared a lot together and that's made us grown so much closer. And so the struggle of life itself is shared. And I think that um, it's, to me, it's so sad that people give up so quickly on things, you know, instead of persevering and, and pushing and staying together and holding each other up versus, you know, like uh, just giving up. So incredibly powerful. Now that is a statement that everyone should really take to heart right there. You work through the hard times. Don't be quick to give up. If you were quick to a person that was quick to give up, you wouldn't be in the position that you're in now. Absolutely. I would have probably just decided I wasn't going to do anything. And who knows? I may not even still be here. Right, exactly. And as we're winding down here, I just have a couple more questions that I want to ask. Firstly, what do you have any advice for? I know there's probably not a ton of people listening that are seriously disabled, but then again, there may be, especially to younger, newly disabled people that are in similar situations to what you were when you were just 15 in Fairbury. Do you have any words of wisdom or just things that maybe they could take to heart and remember that might make their journey a little more maybe meaningful? Well, it's going to be meaningful, but a little easier, maybe, for lack of a better term. I, you know, I, I guess I would feel that when, when people or surroundings or just, you know, everyday life seems to kind of keep you down, you have to realize that, um, it, a lot of it has to come from within. So you have to believe within that, that your life is worth it and that you, you have a purpose in this life. It may be not this, grandiose big huge plan that yeah you maybe have thought it was or um, that you would have thought you could do but at the same time your your life is is worth it it has power and you know um, it is all worth it in the end and it sometimes it takes a little bit extra work on on our behalf but uh, you have to put the work in to do it and I think that that's it I think a lot of sometimes newly disabled people will fall back and they'll be like oh my gosh how could this have happened to me and and they'll dwell on that instead of like okay what do I got to do now where do I go from here so I think it's looking inward but also not being afraid to reach out when you know you need to reach out when you were sucked up by that tornado in 1977 you were holding a dog you said Mm mm-hmm Tell us as we wind down, what happened to that dog? It's such a sweet little story. And, you know, when I go out and I tell this story, like to schools, I do go out and speak to schools sometimes. And um, they always want to know that question. So he woke me up by licking my face and I was holding him. And this farmer came up and he's like, honey, I got to take the dog, you know, because ambulance is going to come. They're going to take you. And I just looked up at him and I, he was only a year old at the time. So he's still kind of a puppy and he was a long haired dachshund. And I looked up at this man. And I said, his name is Wimples. My name is Jill. Somebody will come and find him. Do not put him in a pound. Do not take him to a humane society or anything like that. Please keep him. He won't be a problem. Somebody will come and find him. Well, month went by and he, you know, we were in the hospital. All things kind of happened. We happened to have a family friend that was actually down around that area helping to clean up our area of, you know, like where the tornado had hit, round up some of our belongings, whatever he could do to help. And he happened to go into, we had hung up, he had hung up some, you know, like um, pictures of wimples and stuff like that. But he was happened to be looking for weeks for him. And he happened to go into this cafe 
just one day, sat down, was ordering some food, some coffee, and he was talking about, you know, somebody said, what are you doing down here? And he says, well, you know, I'm helping a family, you know, that are family friends. I'm really still looking for their dog. This gentleman next to him looked over at him and he said, would his name be Wimples? And he looked at him and he's like, yes, it would. He goes, I have him at home. I'll go get him. And so we were reunited. Uh, he was brought back to the family. And the first time that I could travel home, you know, we, we saw, I get to see him again. And he lived to a ripe old 12 years old. So, um, he lived with me after I got married. And, um, so he had a very happy life, but, um, he kind of brought me back to life and, and gave him, you know, a good life after that. And, story as well. So, Right. Wow. What a great little story there. And what an incredible story you have, Jill. That's pretty much a wrap then, I would say. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. It was incredibly powerful, incredibly meaningful, and I very much appreciate your time. Well, I've enjoyed talking to you, Paul, too, and I appreciate, you know, the time that you give and whatever I can do to, to kind of spread the word of, of love and faith and strength, I do. Absolutely wonderful. Well, the pleasure is all mine, Jill. Thank you. And that is a wrap. So thank you everyone so much for listening. And until next Saturday and Sunday, God bless. I'm Paul Garcia. You're listening to Catholic Conversations on Catholic Spirit Radio. Have a great week. You've been listening to Catholic Conversations. Download our podcasts at catholicspiritradio.com. 